Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush, On today's episode, we discuss what Joe Biden's US presidential win means for Boris Johnson and the UK, and we discuss low-traffic neighbourhoods. So we're shaking things up on today's episode, and we are beginning with, I don't even know how to lead into this, but now it's time for a section we like to call... You You Ask ask us. Us! So we've had lots of questions about the US election, as you can imagine. So we're going to start off with those. I'm going to take this question from someone who's given exact pronunciation guide of their name, because I always do this for myself, so I respect it. So this is a question from Ellie Troyhertz. What does the Biden win mean for the Johnson government's Brexit plans? But I suppose we've had so many other questions, we could just talk more generally about what the Biden win means for the Boris Johnson administration. Stephen, you wrote Morning Call on this, and you've also been on holiday, so you've had time to mull this over at your own pace. What do you think the top line is in terms of what a Biden win means for Boris Johnson? So I actually think the the top line is in terms of the direct US-UK relationship, very little. Right? For as long as Boris Johnson is, is prime minister and for as long as Biden is, is there, and actually, I mean, to be honest, as long as Boris Johnson is in Downing Street and the Democrats are in the White House, he is going to be the guy who said Barack Obama is motivated by his ancestral dislike for the United Kingdom, right? Like, it's just like one of those things where like, that will never not be the case. But while that is, you know, in my view, deeply shameful for the United Kingdom, right, for a number of reasons, it doesn't actually matter at all from a diplomacy perspective, because the reason why it's useful to have a good relationship between the principles is if you have a situation where one of them is saying to the other guy, come on, we're really close, you know, come on, Clinton got really close with, with Camp David. If we just have one big push, we can we can actually do something for Middle East peace, right? 
where you have a situation where where Downing Street is trying to drag the White House somewhere it doesn't want to go. Or to have a slightly more successful example, come on, I know you have doubts about this because of what happened in, in Rwanda and failing to get congressional approval, but we can stop a genocide in Kosovo, right? That's where the personal relationship matters. But it kind of doesn't matter, than not just Biden world, but like the democratic foreign policy establishment in general is a bit like, isn't he just like their Trump? Because... From a US-UK perspective, the things that really matter are he believes climate change exists because this next bit doesn't doesn't matter whether or not there is a Senate majority. It means that it will be much harder for Bolsonaro to continue his, you know, why not just keep burning the Amazon policy. He does believe in NATO. He does believe in multilateralism. So in terms of like the UK government's foreign and domestic policy objectives, Biden doesn't have to like the guy. He's a huge positive one way or the other. And I think actually like, like ultimately, the, in terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is obviously, by the time some of our listeners have heard this, the House of Lords will have done what it's going to do one way or the other in terms of voting out the law-breaking clauses. Like ultimately, one of the things I found a bit annoying about a lot of the coverage of that in the context of what it means for Biden is like the reason why like messing around with the protocol matters is the possibility of like reigniting violent civil war <laughs> on the Irish border. You know, that, that the White House will be upset is like true, but it's not even secondary. It's, I mean, it would be in a good day, it would be a tertiary problem. The thing which I think it does have big implications for is actually one of the underrated successes of Boris Johnson's government in foreign policy has basically been, and he did this very well in his first G7. This is core to the fact that, you know, for all they like, we'll both go on air and do a kind of like. I'm going to appeal to this country's faded sense of itself as an imperial power. Then both Macron and Johnson, in very different ways, accounting for different cultural ways that you do that in their countries, but they both do it in different ways. But actually, when you kind of strip away the rhetoric, right, that, that very close security partnership the two have, a lot of that has flowed through the government essentially being like one of the biggest security partners in an age when the US has been deeply unreliable, led by a man without any apparent executive function, who, while his instincts are kind of at odds with with the majority of, of leaders of the G7, the bigger problem is that his, his appetites seem to vary so wildly, and he just seems to be completely incoherent. That has actually benefited the British government in a narrow way quite a lot, because they've been able to be the, do you know what we also like? And we also put a lot of energy into the Iran deal. Hey, do you know what we also think is a problem? Climate change. And I think actually it will be that limitation it poses on a Johnson-led government that will be more profound because it doesn't really matter than the UK is. like the, Well, one, the UK won't be more reliable than the US on the world stage from the 31st of January. But that advantage will, will fade away. But actually the kind of like personal drama, while it's obviously like, embarrassing for the country because of its causes it may be embarrassing for boris johnson if you end up with a kind of like you know better photo opportunities for keir starmer with joe biden than he would otherwise got if boris johnson wasn't the ancestral dislike guy the policy stuff i think doesn't matter really at all and and should we think about since the original question was about brexit Mm. in particular how do you think this changes or doesn't change the forthcoming developments with brexit What I think is really interesting is that there has been a tendency, and I'm sure, you know, as reports have said among the sort of Democrat diplomat establishment, as well as the sort of 
British public sort of left or liberal left sort of side of it of there's been a tendency of sort of conflating Boris Johnson and Donald Trump or Brexit and Donald Trump as sort of part of the same trend and you know you can understand that sort of viewpoint among liberals who feel that there's sort of this populist wave that they don't, they didn't really see coming and they don't really understand and you know it's it's sort of understandable to put those two things together at least in some some ways and you know some of the protests that I've covered over the past few years against Trump in the UK you know you hear speakers saying Boris Johnson's name in the same breath as Donald Trump's name and I think that perhaps has blinded the country slightly to the fact that really Donald Trump and Boris Johnson that they aren't sort of bees in a pod or birds of a feather they might use some of the same tactics and some of the same populist rhetoric that seems to have chimed with people recently but so do a lot of other leaders particularly you know you could see Jeremy Corbyn doing some of the same things about the mainstream press and actually any leader who pursues an America first strategy is not good news for Britain, because if you're putting America first, you're not putting British interests very high up on your agenda. So I do think, you know, even when it comes down to Brexit, although there's been these remarks voiced by diplomats saying that, you know, this could potentially scupper Boris Johnson's relationship with the US or potential for a trade deal with the US, I still think that a president, even if He's sort of unsure about where Boris Johnson's popularity comes from and sort of what kind of values he's trying to appeal to. It's still better to have a president who's not pursuing that aggressive America first strategy to be at the other side of the negotiating table. Yeah, and I I think my overwhelming feeling is that this doesn't, I mean, obviously getting rid of Trump is very good news, but it doesn't change that many of the fundamentals. I don't mean that because... Trump and Biden aren't substantially different because they are. But when people talk about how this will affect Brexit or our chances of a UK-US trade deal, I th- I still think it, it doesn't really fundamentally make much of a difference because we were never very likely to get a good UK-US trade deal, regardless of whether you're working with the Trump administration or the Biden administration. I think it's become, I mean, feel free, both of you, to to dissent if you disagree on this one. But it's just become increasingly clear that the red lines that each side has mean that it won't be a particularly meaningful trade deal, whether they secure it or not. Certainly in terms of replacing the trade that will be lost from leaving the EU, we were never going to fill that gap or plug that hole entirely by securing an even even better trade deal with the US given the various standards on farming and so on that need to be upheld for the UK so like I think whether you get the trade deal or not I don't think it'd be anything to write home about but then secondly the question of whether you know it, it will be harder to get it because of the stance that Biden takes over the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Internal Market Bill. The idea that he'll be more likely to block a trade deal because of his objections to how the UK government is approaching frictionless trade on the Irish border, I think is kind of beside the point because already people who think in exactly the same way as Biden, notably Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic majority in the House of Representatives, weren't going to pass a trade deal that they believed threatened peace on the island of Ireland anyway. So it doesn't really mean that Biden's objections to 
what the UK government is doing with the internal market bill, you know, aren't significant in terms of global relations. I think it's very good news if the the president of the United States is blasting from a loudspeaker the important tenets of the Good Friday Agreement. But it doesn't really make a difference because Democrats were already holding the UK to that anyway in terms of a trade deal. So I suppose basically the complexion changes a lot. But the fundamentals of what it means for Brexit, I don't think change that much. I don't think, maybe Downing Street will still think this way, but I don't think that they necessarily should be thinking that because they're now dealing with a Biden administration, they need a a trade deal with the EU any more than they did before because they still need one now and they always did. That would be my overriding feeling that I think that that doesn't mean that it isn't really quite important that now the US is will soon be singing from the same hymn sheet as the as all of continental Europe and the Republic of Ireland and lots of key voices from the Northern Irish peace process in stating their concerns about the internal market bill I think that's really really significant and it was bad that we didn't have a US administration that cared about that for a long time given the historic stake that the US has had in the Irish peace process. I still think it's significant just in terms of who's making what case on the international stage. But in terms of what it means for Brexit and for a UK-US trade deal, I don't think it makes much of a difference. I don't know if the two of you agree. Yeah, I mean, I think that's 100% correct, right? Like, one, the central problems from a US side, right? It doesn't matter if like the senator for Iowa is a Republican or a Democrat, right? There are still a bunch of farmers in Iowa. Ditto, it doesn't matter if the senator in, in Michigan is a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, I'd like to make it very clear. I, I do think both of those things matter a great deal. I, I'm solely talking about the US-UK trade deal here. They still have interest in manufacturing and automotive stuff, which are hard to reconcile with signing a deep and meaningful trade deal. I think at the margin, a Biden presidency makes it easier because they're like a bunch of things we know that voters really don't like about a US trade deal, right? This country has like an odd relationship with animal welfare, considering its willingness to eat them quite freely. And also its willingness to eat not particularly high grade meat quite freely, right? I think the idea that we were going to get, you know, hormone injected beef, chlorine wash chicken like any of that stuff like the Blair government couldn't do GMO where I mean mm-hmm. well actually the, the scientific argument for GMO is a lot better than the argument than oh don't worry it's fine than like it's a pandemic cesspit than you know it's gonna <laughs> is massively accelerating uh, antibiotic resistance in the world like the scientific argument for GMO was a lot stronger but the Blair government still couldn't do it and also the mm-hmm. Blair government was willing to disastrously in the case of Iraq fly against public opinion and to use its political capital in a way that, you know, the all-seeing, all-retreating Boris Johnson administration visibly is not, right? The only thing it burns capital for is to defend the right of its advisors to to stay in office and to to do what they like. But the like the central barriers to a US-UK trade deal, right, to just, you know, to use a slightly abstruse example, right, Camborne and Redruth has, since 2001, had a Labour MP, a Lib Dem MP, and now it is represented by George Eustace, the Environment Secretary, who is the in after Michael Gove, the key player in essentially forcing a bunch of red lines, which means that there is not going to be a US-UK trade deal. Now, some of that is because George Eustace is, you know, a farmer and, you know, is deeply involved in, in like these policy issues, does actually really care about them. But the other thing is like broadly, like it doesn't matter what colour the rosette on the 
and the MP for Campbellwood and Redrick. So there are certain Cornish interests and that MP is always going to be in favour of, right? In the same way that, like, you're never going to have an MP for, like, an inner London constituency who's like, do you know what, I can't stand people being able to get on the underground for an affordable price. And, like, if, and if you're trying to negotiate a trade deal which allows you to run against those regional interests, they don't really go anywhere. The one difference is, is that now campaigners against the US-UK trade deal would have to, like, talk about the individual substance of the things voters don't like, as opposed to be able to point to this person who British voters overwhelmingly dislike and go, Trump trade deal. Mm-hmm. What I think it really reveals is that there obviously is a vision of Brexit on parts of the right that is, you know, kind of a sort of disaster capitalism of, you know, like, we've left the EU, the only way to survive is to deregulate, tear down barriers, you know, become an entrepreneurial state and does deals all around the world, right? And maybe that is politically possible. One of the reasons why I've thought the right will always end up being disappointed by Brexit is I just don't think the political coalition for that end state is there for them. But it's certainly not there if you're like led by this like all must have prizes. Let's never ever give a speech in which we in any way prepare the country for the idea that things might be difficult. Like this this idea that this lot were ever going to be like, yeah, here's the US UK trade deal. You might not like the sound of it, but you should hear what British farmers are putting in your food. Yeah, like if you've ever had a Sainsbury's basic chicken, then trust me, you you ain't going to notice the difference here, right? They 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 were never going to do any of that. That is fundamentally not where this government comes from and how it operates. And I think that speaks to the to me the still big unresolved Brexit question, which is that if you want to make a success of Brexit from a right wing perspective, at some point you have to move away from the we heart the NHS three hundred and fifty million a week. Oh, we'll never do anything bad. And the only problem with this country are liberals. To a more hard-edged, controversial and contested set of arguments for radical policy prescriptions that some of the people who voted to leave won't like and some of the people who voted to remain won't thank you for because they have an emotional attachment to the EU. And you have to be willing and able to do that. And in some ways, I think the other thing that this does is it like, now obviously like, you know, Dom Cummings is never going to write a long-winded blog in which he goes, actually, looking back, I was a central part of why this didn't work out. But this is another thing that allows them to avoid going, looking back, our approach to governing is why this didn't work out. As much as the undesirability or desirability of Brexit, either way, we are the problem here. And I think that's the other way it's interesting, because you can kind of see already this, like, this myth starting to go around that like, oh, you know, maybe a trade deal could have happened under Trump. It's like, it wasn't going to happen, guys. And it's, it's, yeah, like, it's not going to happen because actually primarily because of an unwillingness to like, electorate, I think would collapse anyway, but like, uh, it's an unwillingness to even try to put their hand through the glass. And that is kind of the central Brexit problem from a conservative perspective. Obviously, I'm quite glad and they don't need to try, but that's why they wanted to do this, right? If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
so for the second part of this podcast, we, you know, we've obviously shaken things up by beginning with our You Ask Us. So for the second section, Steve and I wanted to pick Anusha's brain about a really interesting piece that she wrote last week. Please don't write in to accuse us of being London-centric. It's an interesting thing. But the phenomenon of low-traffic neighborhoods, which have been fiercely dividing opinion and getting people going on the internet all weekend. So Anush, just to begin, could you just outline what these low-traffic neighborhoods are? Am I correct that they're only in London? No, actually, no. They're not just in London. So um, they're across the country. It's just the majority of them are in London. Well, they're across England. Sorry. Yes, yes, England. The the devolution lover has logged in. Yeah, yeah. No, that is made clear in the piece, yes. They're in place across England. So when did they come in? What do they involve? And then what's getting people's backs up about them? So basically, there have always been sort of schemes to try and reduce or close off traffic. But a whole wave of them have been brought in this year because the UK government made all this funding available, £250 million called the Emergency Active Travel Fund in May. And that's when they basically wanted to harness the potential of more people walking and cycling because they were trying to avoid public transport and also more people sort of being around their local areas because people were traveling traveling less into central locations for work and there was i think you'll probably remember a big drop in air pollution during the original lockdown mm-hmm. and the government kind of wanted to make sure that they uh, harnessed the potential of that so they made all this funding available and they told councils to make extra space road space available to cyclists and pedestrians pretty much immediately so in their advice to local authorities they said measures should be taken as swiftly as possible within weeks so councils are sort of scrambling to create these low traffic neighborhood schemes off the back of this and basically what they are is roads closed off to through traffic and through traffic is basically when cars make journeys through a road to get from one location outside of the area to another location outside of the area. So you may have heard it being called rat running as well. So the idea was trying to try and close roads off to that. And the reason that these schemes could be introduced so quickly was because they are experimental or temporary schemes in inverted commas. So that's schemes that can be introduced very quickly to intervene in traffic flow without having to ask people first. So if these schemes were going to be made permanent, then they would have to consult residents. So that's Part of where the controversy lies is that people feel like these these sudden road closures were imposed on them without asking them first. And because of the haste of trying to use the money that was made available by the government and also to try and use the kind of trends that the initial lockdown brought, it's meant that there's not been very good communication with residents about what these things are, how long they'll be there, when people will be asked about them, whether or not it will be possible to tweak them. So... There's obviously been a great deal of rage against them from people affected. And there's there's all sorts of different people affected, which is why it's not it's not a straight sort of car lobby versus environmentalist battle. So there's a lot of different dividing lines. First of all, one of the consequences of closing some residential roads off to traffic is that the surrounding roads, cars use the surrounding roads instead. So that means that some people's roads have become busier with traffic while other people are enjoying these nice, quiet streets. And that doesn't just affect drivers, that that affects people who just live on those streets and happen to not be in the LTN. And in some areas, 
what's been perceived, and it's not actually been backed up by evidence yet, but there are academics working on finding out what kind of streets have been affected. But it's perceived as these schemes have been used in nicer streets, nicer areas, at the expense of maybe streets where there's higher density housing and perhaps people who live on them aren't maybe as well off. And so there's a sort of gentrification and and social justice angle to this debate as well. So a lot of people I spoke to actually weren't drivers and there's a lower car ownership among less well-off people in, in the London boroughs where I've been looking at this, but they still felt that they had lost out on these schemes. And the arguments in favour of them are that usually um, evidence shows that when you do introduce traffic reduction schemes like this and the traffic does build up in other areas, it does eventually dissipate because car ownership falls. So that's what happened in Waltham Forest, which it's not one of the new LTNs, but it's had this mini Holland scheme, which has had similar measures in since 2014. And car ownership has dropped in that borough. So there's not any evidence of, of, of how effective the current wave of LTNs that are causing all the controversy, how well they're doing and, and whether they're successful, because they've just been they've been brought in so quickly. And of course, <laughs> the trends in travel are completely out of whack because because of lockdown. So it's difficult to sort of tell what people are actually doing and, and, how, and what behaviours will stick. I mean, I think you know, your piece, which which captured all of this really well and, and is, is really good. I think the thing you kind of like sum up sort of perfect there is one of the problems. And, you know, obviously, as long term listeners will know, I'm like a zealot for all of this stuff. Right. The problem is, is that low traffic neighbourhoods work well as part of a suite of measures, including having a overall traffic reduction strategy. Yeah. The problem is, is we have LTNs, which I think are a good positive policy measure being implemented at a time when we essentially where we have a traffic increase strategy broadly. Right. Like Now, obviously, there is no one getting up on telly and going city dwellers take to your cars. But that that is essentially what they're being told to do. Right. Mm-hmm. People broadly understand that like, if they can drive on their own to work in a car only used by their household, that is a, a better way of doing it from a COVID perspective than getting on a bus, a tube, train, a tram. And that means the, the kind of the costs of a low traffic neighbourhood where you redistribute the traffic to other places, which has implications for air pollution, safety, livability. I do think it exposes an interesting jagged edge about devolution, right? Which is so one of the things I really think we ought to do, and I think it's really interesting, and you you wrote about this in your piece, right? So there's a a modal filter, which is one of those blocks with a nice tree in it, which turns it into a low traffic neighbourhood around my way that has been graffitied with car now. Now, LTNs are not controlled by Sadiq Khan. They're controlled by the London boroughs. But I, I do think, despite the fact that Bluntly, I think in the case in the case of Hackney, I think Philip Danville and John Burke have shown brave and quite interesting leadership on a variety of environmental and transport related issues. Well, I don't think Sadiq Khan has ever really come close to equaling that level of uh, ambition. I do think it, it shows them one things should kind of try and be devolved in the area where people think they're responsible for, but also. And you see this across all of the LTNs, uh, you know, in London and elsewhere, is what I think of as the Finsbury Park problem. Now, Finsbury Park, for listeners who aren't in London, is an area of northeast London which has basically always been, like, fairly grotty. Like, no amount of gentrification, no amount of, like, horse-faced posh people coming to Rowan's will will make... Finsbury Park just resists any attempt to to make it non-grotty. And the central reason for this is actually because it is on the epicentre of three boroughs. So part of it is Islington Council's responsibility, part of it is Haringey's Council's responsibility, and part of it's 
at me. This is embarrassing. I've lived in this area my whole life. It doesn't matter. The point is there are multiple viruses who are responsible for it, and so it doesn't really work. And you see this with LTNs in pretty much, this is actually really a, a London and a, I'm going to do the thing which every time I do this on the podcast, half of our listeners write in to say, yes, you're right. We do need to reclaim our destiny as a greater Birmingham. And then a bunch of people who are wrong say, why are you determined to erase Wolverhampton? But you really see this in, in greater Birmingham, right? Now... Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, like it's it's lovely when a, a name has like a proper history, but like broadly, right? If you are going through that conurbation and you aren't from there, it, it's not immediately apparent when you've left Birmingham. Other than, of course, if you're doing an LTN where no one has the policy tool because the powers don't reside in the same place for someone to go, oh right, so if I have an LTN there, then that means that I shouldn't have an LTN there because that creates like a weird bulge of transport here in a way that's deeply unpleasant. And I do think in in both, and this is you know this may be purely anecdotal, and it maybe this isn't correct at all, but my strong impression from both reading local news and from social media and from like the various like you know urbanism things I follow that LTNs have been less resisted in Manchester, and I suspect that is because you don't quite have although there is still the same like jagged edges and it is not the organism we would recognise from above as a city is two cities. Which is, of course, more and more true of London and Reading. Well, it was before the pandemic, and that may now go into reverse a bit. But essentially, I think the problem that this has revealed is I think for low traffic neighbourhoods to work, they would have to be run by City Hall, because that's the only place where you don't end up with this weird thing of like, so particularly in London, uh, where it's like some roads are run by the mayor, some roads are run by the local council, some roads are like in like some weird joint magical thing, which doesn't really work. And it just creates these obvious unfairnesses and obvious problems of of surplus traffic. Yeah, that's spot on. Yeah. And it also makes it difficult to collect the data to work out whether or not they're they're meeting their their aims, because there's so many different bodies involved in collecting different types of data. And actually what, what you really need is a view of the wider area, because if you put an LTN in one borough, then that could impact a neighbouring borough, but you need to be able to measure the impact on a scale that takes that in. So that was another problem that people on both sides of the argument have encountered because it's very difficult for them to to find evidence of, <laughs> that backs up their point of view either way. And also, you know, the, the divisions are a problem. I was listening to one interviewee who was telling me about how his area had never really had a division before, but now it was very clear which side was seen as the fancy side and which side was seen as maybe the less fancy side. And he said he, you know, he lived in the fancy side and he lived in the LTN and he said it was nicer, but he he felt uncomfortable about the the division that the LTN map had kind of highlighted. And so, you know, even on a much more granular level, those divides can complicate the issue. I think that's a really good point that you made earlier, Anish, about air quality, because I think we already do know, but I don't think we talk enough about how your exposure to pollution and very low air quality is like one of the big metrics of inequality particularly in a city so I I think I live in a low traffic neighborhood now which is cool my new flat that I only just moved to but I used to live on literally the main Finchley road and I had triple glazing and it was kind of fine when I was hardly ever home and then it became quite grim <laughs> in lockdown. Mm-hmm. I mean, I only lived there for, for a couple of years, but I was very aware when, when I was walking to the tube or just sort of at points where I was very aware of the pollution on the road. That's like 
people familiar with the Finchley Road in London will know it's like a really main arterial road that leads it's like the road that you would take out of London to to go further north in lots of cases I was just really aware looking at all of the flats and buildings or like basically looking at all of the apartments and flats above all the shops along that street lots of them didn't even have triple glazing and you could see families like in quite cramped conditions living on these main streets and I think the family that moved into our flat afterwards was going to be living on this main road with a with a really young child and it means that it's a thing I'm very aware of here that we're in this low traffic neighborhood but we are sort of in between some main roads on either side and it's not as though people don't live on those roads so I think it's it's nice when I'm on my bike around here that it is quieter because I do think that smaller roads are more dangerous for cyclists in lots of ways um if there isn't enough room and there are lots of parked cars on either sides that's where as Keir Starmer could tell you (laughs) that's where the accidents happen you know with bigger cars but I'm just really aware that yeah the fundamental point that you've both raised ultimately these schemes maybe they do work in the longer term if you can bring in an overall reduction in car usage but if you're just moving where the cars are it doesn't really make an overall difference and I suppose the second thing I would say on that is I feel like when we talk about low traffic neighborhoods and traffic reduction schemes what we really need to be talking about is cycling infrastructure because the two kind of can't exist one without the other there's a really good documentary I'm, I'm going off on a tangent made by Melanie Laurent who's a sort of like very like chic bougie French actress and activist she made a really really good documentary which everyone should watch in lockdown with this French documentary maker basically about about the climate emergency but taking a global perspective on all of the different innovations that different countries are trying big and small to resolve it so she looks at sort of urban farming in Ohio and then she looks at innovations in um, Scandinavia and what little villages in England are doing and it's really really interesting but one of the main takeaways from it is the kind of obvious point that if you want to curb traffic or car usage in a city you need to build your city according to your ideal and the the image that you're working towards rather than just trying to accommodate existing trends of traffic because then in that case you will just you know find your traffic usage still expanding exponentially and you'll never be able to to put a lid on it so you kind of need to rather than just closing roads it's all about building infrastructure that means that suddenly a really significant chunk of your population can cycle into work in London again like this is what Stephen was saying about how certain things need to be sort of city hall wide but I mean there are like bizarre examples around London (laughs) there's what I think there's one in Fitzrovia where a cycle lane literally just stops in the middle of the road because it moves from Westminster Council into another council. It's Westminster Council in the wrong that just doesn't continue the cycle lane. But they're basically just, there isn't a cycle lane anymore on this quite busy road. And there are lots of bizarre examples of cycling infrastructure in London, notably on the Finchley Road, never coming to fruition because like Islington Council and Westminster Council can't agree on things. And clearly until you solve that problem, you don't solve the traffic problem. 
end of my little rant. Yes, I think one of the quotes from a climate change expert who I spoke to for the piece was that traffic expands to the space that you allow it. So of course, you know, to reduce air pollution and and car ownership for the sake of the planet, you do have to limit where people drive. But as Stephen was saying, and and I think as we've all, all said in this discussion, and as I discovered when reporting on the piece, you need to put alternatives in place for people who are adversely affected by those changes. And it's not just irate drivers. And that like being able to not live on a main road is a real privilege. And some people definitely will spend their whole lives not being able to afford to move one street in away from the traffic. And, and fundamentally, you need to make living on the main road safer as well as as well as sort of quieter neighborhoods. Actually, the thing I find fascinating about the about the piece and indeed about this whole debate right is the underlying belief which is really hard to eradicate that like if you have an ltn it's because you live in a posh area which i mean like you know like i like live on you know like a place which is literally like a byword for like bougie poshness right but church street is not a low traffic neighborhood partly because of like tedious stuff to do with london where the way devolution between them the borough and, and the mayor works in london but i i find it fascinating whether or not this becomes self-fulfilling do people start to believe then an area is more desirable and therefore move to it because it becomes the case. But I think this is where I guess my kind of maximal ban private cars, right? Unless, unless you know, you have a care need, in which case your car should be provided for you in any case. It's because, sorry, I went to the doctor before lockdown happened and we were talking, you know, kind of, and I kind of said something out of cough and they said, oh, you've always, yeah, where, where were you born? I was like, bone. They're like, have you ever lived anywhere else other than North East London? I was like, no. And they were like, well, I wouldn't say you shouldn't worry about the about about the fact your cough sounds that bad, but you probably can't do anything about it now. So, but the thing is, I think like fundamentally, you 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 can't fix that problem unless there are just fewer cars, and you have to have the like modal change first. And I think this is where the the fact that we don't have a particularly radical mayor, and we have a Downing Street, despite the fact that actually, I'm sure there's another example, but I would say the the one positive thing you could say about Boris Johnson's mayoralty was he did invest in cycle infrastructure, but has zero appetite to devolve power to anyone other than like someone at a party once who had a very impressive scheme called OneWeb or whatever, which means that you can't get the like systems change that the government is nominally committed to unless you a have a government willing to devolve it to city regions and b city regions which are willing to like actually use the policy and because i suspect this is probably the other reason why again it may just be entirely based on like me reading the wrong newspapers following the wrong people on twitter and facebook but i suspect the other reason why it seems to be less contested in manchester is andy burnham has put a lot of energy into trying to improve the quality of bus provision despite having to jump through i mean and the provisions are improving because of the the buses bill, but yeah, the kind of um, the the sort of the the regulatory hurdles he inher- he was first given as mayor of of Greater Manchester were not great. But the fact that they have those alternatives, I suspect, is one reason why it seems, and I might just be completely wrong, but it seems to me that it's less contested there than elsewhere. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.